Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the TetraCast. This is RPG Site's weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. As always, my name is Brian Vitali, and joining me today, I have Josh Torres. Yeah, 2022, off to a really wild start, apparently. Sheesh, so much has already happened. We have James Galizio. Hey, folks. And Chow Min Wu. Hello, people. And uh, Adam is, again, not here today. I think he's just tied up with like work things. Uh, hopefully, we hear from him again next week. He's been playing a lot of games that I'm interested to hear him talking about. Uh, but we'll get back with him when we can. In the meantime, this week has been an interesting week because in the term of the number of news bits to talk about it's really not that many but it is very top heavy with one specific thing that happened this week that is going to basically require a bit of discussion and that is of course the microsoft acquisition of activision blizzard which it's in it in itself there's so much context around that with the 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 allegations surrounding activision blizzard microsoft's history like i feel like we were just here talking about this with bethesda uh, it feels like yesterday that we had that discussion and felt like that going to be tough, but here it is again. Uh, so very, very top heavy in terms of news stories this week and what we're going to talk about. There were a few other announcements, some ports, and, and we'll obviously go into those as we always do. But I feel like we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about our opinions and our feedback on what this could mean for gaming and uh, obviously with our focus on the RPG space uh, coming from Activision Blizzard. Yeah, it's a, it's a landmark moment, you know, because it's, it is without a doubt the biggest, largest acquisition in terms of the video game industry to date and by several margins. You know, we were talking about the Microsoft acquisition of Bethesda not too long ago, not how that was a sizable amount. And that's, that was insane. And then now you have this amount and it's like, what was it? Seventy billion? It was like sixty-eight point seven billion dollars. All right, I was I was not expecting it to be this disparate. So Microsoft to acquire ZeniMax was seven and a half billion. So almost like a factor of ten, or I guess nine. Like that's nine times as much. I thought maybe it'd be like double or triple, but no. Just it's it's yeah. I can't even like put a latch on how much that is. It's just an yeah. unfathomable amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> the wild thing about it is that it makes like the Bethesda purchase seem like pocket change in comparison, even though that was still like seven and a half billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, seven seven billion seems like a huge number until you put it next to seventy billion. Uh but we'll get into it. So obviously for this week, uh in January, we've kind of discussed it's been a slow month for RPGs. I mean, it's it's January. It, that's how it is. Uh, we are obviously looking forward to Pokemon Legends Arceus at the end of the month. Obviously, you got to be diligent because there have been rumors of leaks and everything. So if you're, depending on how eager you are for that game, you're either A, potentially already playing it, or B, uh, allowing yourself to get spoiled. But it doesn't come out officially until the, what, the 28th. So we might talk about it next week, uh, on because we'll, we'll be recording the day after it officially releases, um, or maybe the week after. I know we have a few people on staff eager to talk about it, so I'm sure we'll have a ton of cool discussions on that in the coming weeks. Uh, for this week, I'm going to think I'm going to start off with normally when we talk about uh, the initial section of our podcast, when we go into games we've been playing. Uh, I don't usually start off first, but I think this time I'm going to because uh, I took a little bit of a, a gap in January. I had just finished Yakuza 6 and I'm waiting for Pokemon. So I wanted to figure out what do I play and a game that released just on uh, a couple days ago that I was interested in and had the time for is called 
Expeditions Rome, which unfortunately I think is like the most dry, boring title of a video game to try to discuss and get people interested in it. But oh well, it is what it is. So um, I I would rather have a boring title than a weird title like Undecember, which I believe is the title of like (laughs) Infinite Undiscovery. Yeah, it's like it's like a like a isometric action RPG coming to like mobile and PC or something. And it's like, what is that title? So I guess this well, is compared to that, I'm willing like, to take this. <laughs> at least it doesn't have like a mobile title where it's like Rome Conflict Age of Battle or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Jeez. Expeditions Rome. What this is, is this is a turn-based tactical RPG set in like the early BC, like 70, 60, 50 BC. Um during the uh, a war between Rome and Pontus, like the Third Mithrandic War, it's it's a period of history that I'm actually like not well versed in at all, or or if I did learn about it, it was decades ago and I've forgotten it. So, uh, it's obviously it's a work of historical fiction, but it does involve you know historical characters or whatever, and tries to at least follow the the general flow of these conflicts that took place in the Mediterranean. Uh, before uh, in the late BC or early BC, late BC. I don't know how, how the correct way to say that. Um, it's kind of got two phases to it, or two two kind of disparate halves. One of which this this is the reason that I was interested in trying this game out in the first place is that it has a a gameplay mode that is very similar to something like Divinity: Original Sin, where you have a, a series of five or six party members, basically written characters with their own quest lines, dialogue choices, uh, classes, abilities, and you control them on a tactical grid and you know, you go through combat encounters and kind of form a basically form a strategy based on each character's, you know, strengths or weaknesses, what sort of role they play in battle, everything like that. Um, and that part is, uh, I think, I don't know, pretty, pretty standard. It's, it does remind me a lot of the Divinity games, like I said. It does, I think, do a lot of cool, interesting things with its weapon system, which I might get into. But before I do, it also has a part of the game that plays a little bit like a diet. 4x strategy game or at least what i imagine a 4x strategy game plays like 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 crusaders kings or stellaris um i've never really i've always been interested in those sorts of games but i've never felt like a i'm maybe not smart enough or b don't have enough time to really like sink my teeth into those but this has a basically a part of the game where you control a legion of troops which is like three thousand four thousand five thousand troops and you have to like keep up you know your your level of rations and your medicine or your your currency and you you basically go across the map capturing outposts and of defending you know your own forts from invaders and things like that so basically it has kind of like this macro scale conflict that you have to basically strategize and you know work work around the uh the gameplay elements there and then it has like the more micro scale conflict where while your legion is battling you know on the on, on the war front or whatever you've got your handful of troops that does the more intimate conflicts where you're fighting you know soldiers is on, the, on is a, the interface for this like like on a, like a world map that you're seeing you see like those various territories and regions then you're kind of like dictating it through menus uh yeah so the the, the legion thing is all menu based and it's all ui and it feels a little bit weird because i think i've um I think I've criticized games in the past for basically games where you just play the UI. But in this one, I, I think I actually kind of enjoy it. A, because it is partnered with the the more traditional, uh, the more familiar, the more RPG-like grid-based strategy battles. And then just alongside of that, you've kind of got this 
element of the game, which is more, you know, you have your little markers on the map and you're moving them around and you, you have to keep track of your resources and, you know, manage how many troops you have and, you know, make sure that you know, your morale is high and your, and your troop counts high or whatever. And what this is actually kind of reminding me of is something that I criticized not too long ago, late last year, was the Crusader battles in Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous. However, the reason why I despised those, despise is a strong word, the reason why I did not gel with those at all was because they were very slow, very clunky, I didn't feel like your strategy mattered or there was only like a couple winning viable options. Where here, I'm enjoying it here in Expeditions Rome because it is very snappy, very quick, like all the animations can be like fast forwarded through, which... And it makes it sound like, how much are you enjoying it if you're fast forwarding through all of it? But it's just, it, it just has a really good feedback. It doesn't feel like it's cumbersome or it takes a long time. And it's got some nice artwork and some UX where basically how, I guess I'll just start with this, this section of the game. You have a, you have a legion of troops and you have a fort that you basically build yourself up, which is a very, that's a very classic RPG thing. We've seen that in a ton of different games where you have like a home base and you slowly uh, build up your armory and your workshop and your, your legionnaire tent or whatever. And you can even like create like uh, baths for your soldiers or whatever to help improve morale and things like that. And then you take them across the map and you'll, you'll basically have like a, a an indicator of the strength of your legion versus the strength needed to overtake a certain outpost or a certain location. And you'll 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 move your your legion's pin over to it and it'll it'll give you basically some rng on saying like here's your likelihood of success here's your likelihood of suffering a major injury or whatever here's here's how much loot you're probably going to get and things like that and then you kind of select some basic stratagems where it's uh, you know, all out offensive. You're you're more likely to win, but you're more likely to to suffer injuries or or pincer attack, where it's going to take more time and you might you might suffer more casualties on your troops, but your commanders are going to you're more you're still more likely to emerge victorious and things like that. So it is a little bit like playing percentages and uh, kind of are you more interested in winning the battle quickly or winning the battle with as few casualties as possible, things like that. And it's just very snappy, very fluid. You end up doing this pretty frequently, so it's good that it is snappy. Um, the only thing about it that I kind of walked away disappointed from is on the normal difficulty, it has like easy, normal, hard, and like Iron Man or something like that. On the normal difficulty, I always kept founding my resource values like my my food, my rations, my number of troops. Uh, uh, you do also, just as a sign of the times, have like a list of slaves, servants that you kind of like as it's treated like a resource. And yeah, all of those, models. yeah, what it is what it is. And then um, all of those numbers I kept finding, even though I wasn't like strategizing very hard, like kept creeping up and up and up where it almost felt like it wasn't balanced quite properly or I never had to worry about, did I have, well, I'm still, um, I'm in the second act of three of the game. So I haven't finished it, but I put it like maybe 20 hours into it. But all of those like resource values, I almost feel like I'm not engaging with the tactical or the strategy as much because they keep creeping up and up uh, and I'm not really trying very hard to do that. Like, oh, I have plenty of food or I never have to worry with, about how much money I have because I'm just I'm just obtaining enough just by naturally playing. Which yeah, that's, that's fine. Finding the right balance in a 4X game is like so difficult because if you if you have too much of everything, it feels like, as you said, it feels like everything's pointless because you, you, you've already have met these requirements. While if you kind of you're on the other extreme end where you just have too little progressing feels like it takes forever because you don't have anything that you need. You have to wait for these resources to come in. So that must be so hard to balance having like a a reliable like reward treadmill of like 
hey, I'm I, it actually feels like I'm working towards something and I'm being rewarded for doing it effectively while just having just enough at the right time. Yeah, and you don't obviously want like the normal difficulty to be too frustrating and turn people off. And I know this would be easily solvable. It just turn the difficulty up to, to hard. And I and there there are like some very specific difficulty sliders. Um, also kind of like Pathfinder, where you can say like enemy damage or you know, like it's not just easy, medium, hard. Those are more like loadouts, and then you you can kind of fine-tune like uh, you know, enemy damage, resource gain, legion battles. I forget all the options, but you can you can very tweak it. Like I I'm basically complaining that that it's too easy on normal on the normal boilerplate yeah. mode but right. i could tweak it but also i'm kind of like eager to finish the game and, and there it, has it's also it's like it, like imagine like i don't know how it, it treats it like this you can clarify me but uh like like when you tweak up like the difficulty slider like in some uh games like you get like less resources coming in so it's like does that feel rewarding then if you're just you're just like kind of deliberately slowing down your progress for a better like you know, like, like to make it feel more difficult. Like, I don't know how Expeditions Rome treats it, if you know. Yeah, I, I need I need to remind myself expe- exp- specifically what you can tweak. Uh, I think a mo- I think most of them are combat based and less on the like resource management. But the thing is, is that if you struggle in combat mode, you're going to need more medicine and rations. So I think they're they're kind of tied together like that. Um, but right, yeah, right now I'm just playing it on the very standard normal mode, uh, and there is an easy mode. So if you if you're not you know at all like I've played some, I haven't played any tactical. I haven't played like like I've mentioned Crusaders, Kings, or Stellaris or any of that. But I have played other tactical RPGs or games like Divinity: Original Sin that has some tactical elements to it. So I figured normal was good, and if it's a little little bit easy on the legion front and that's fine because i actually have been struggling a little bit with the more the the other part of the game as i mentioned is very more uh familiar to me anyways turn-based tactical rpg where you have your your squad of six to eight characters and you have like a it's and i say grid but it is actually a hexagon grid in this game which is actually kind of interesting it, may, it means the map design can be a little bit more intricate and there's there's like the usual things like elevation and uh traps and like hazards and things like that as well um and uh your there is a class system with specializations so a lot of the classes have like Latin names. So like Vera is basically like a light armored assassin. Um, and there's a few others that I don't remember offhand. You, you basically have like a mage, an assassin, a soldier. But then the soldier can specialize. Like, are they going to be a vanguard, which is basically someone that has like a high defense, uses a shield. You basically put them in the front of the line and they are just there to tank and soak up damage. Um, but then you also have like brawlers uh, where you focus mostly on unarmed attack and dealing a lot of damage uh, without being weighed down by weapons and things like that. It's pretty intricate, but without being too overwhelming. And uh, the strategy that I found that worked for me was to basically make a lot of high damage, rush the objective, don't worry too much about defense or uh, like sustainability power, like having a lot of health or a lot of a lot of ways to heal yourself. It's basically just like, defeat the enemies before they defeat you glass cannon sort of mindset and that worked really well for me and there's there's some traits where you can basically have like lone wolf characters that have bonuses if they are at least six tiles away from an ally or things like that so you basically just have them go out and spread out and basically clear the objective as quickly as possible and in all of act one this strategy worked really well for me until and this is something that i think i was streaming in our staff chat uh, and i was struggling with this and getting frustrated uh at the end of act one of this game um act one is the war between rome and pontus which is i think like a persian empire that was on the north side of the mediterranean at this time 
And you end up having to string together a lot of battles in sequence and not heal between them, which for me that I didn't have characters with a lot of health, a lot of armor, a lot of staying power or a lot of ways to heal. I was so used to playing glass cannon where it's like, great, now do five battles in a row with your glass cannon army. And I'm like, oh, crap, uh, it didn't work very well. So eventually I made through by like dealing with like a lot of like basically I, I did the equivalent of using a lot of elixirs. I used a lot of like bandages and a lot of like healing consumable items or things like that because I didn't really have any healers or medics on my team. Uh, so yeah, I learned the hard way that my my strategy was not applicable to all situations. Uh, but that's the sort of thing that I actually kind of enjoyed, that I, uh, I had an approach, I had a strategy that was working, and then the game gave me an objective where I had to change it up or I had to make do or figure out what can I use with the, what, what I have implemented with the way that I've built my team and my, my, my legion and, you know, come across and still emerge victorious despite the fact that I wasn't well suited for the challenge being put forth. Uh, so now I'm in Act 2, and Act 2 basically changes the location and the setting completely. So I think there's three acts to the game, which it sounds like it's covering a pretty wide stretch of time, like a decade or so. So it's almost like three different disparate stories. And I guess I haven't really talked about the story much. Um, I think my story, I think the story of this game is probably the least interesting thing about it. It's fine. It's basically kind of a historical fiction where you create a a centurion who is like who becomes a general in these uh, in these conflicts that really took place, and like wow, I can't believe a fresh general you know defeated defeated this you know veteran army or whatever, and then basically like the career of like someone that you did did you make him or did they were they were already existing in the game? You you make him, and it's oh. it's basically kind of like what if there was this. Uh, generic nameless general that you create that ended up be being the reason that Rome, you know, was successful in these in these conflicts or whatever, and you you end up uh you end up working with uh, a bunch of historical figures like Cicero and things like that. And it, it I like the the, the the Dynasty Warrior Empires games where you like kind of like make like a nameless person and then like they fought fought over China and like uh, during the three Warring Periods era and then. That's or I, I, I was actually thinking kind of like Neo, where it's like the Warring States uh -huh. period in Japan. So you see like Nobunaga and all that, but also like this, this half yokai demon was happened to be there and was very important or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, the one thing about the this, I don't want to get too much into the mechanics because that would just be kind of dry, I think. But one thing that I think is really interesting is that so each class that you pick in this game can wield a different set of weapons like spears, pikes, swords, uh, shields, daggers, things like that. And weapons, whenever you obtain them or like craft them or roll for them, they have a, like a semi-random selection of weapon abilities. And included in this semi-randomness, sometimes you get abilities where it is specific to a certain combination of weapons. Like if you're crafting a dagger, you might get a very basic dagger that has like three attacks, one that does high damage, one that does damage, more damage if you're attacking out of stealth or one that causes bleed. Like kind of, that's kind of like the sort of weapon abilities that you get basically just 
different sorts of abilities that some will be damaged over time. Some are basically just pure like strike damage doing, you know, or some have like conditionals, like whether you're attacking at a stealth or from a certain position or from a higher elevation, whatever. But sometimes you get like cross abilities where it's like, if you're wielding a dagger and a spear, you'll be able to do this and it will allow you to penetrate defenses of an, of an, of an armored enemy. Or if you're wielding a sword and a pike, you will be able to do this charge attack where you run from a distance or whatever. And this is all semi-random. So you might craft a weapon. Like, let's say I'm, I'm at, my, I'm at my, uh, my smithy or whatever, and I've got some materials and I'm crafting daggers. And I create this really strong dagger that has some high bonuses and there is some RNG involved. But one of the weapon abilities it has is a cross ability that requires a, a dagger and a sword. Then I might not normally equip a sword on my Fifi character or whatever, but if I really want to use this ability, maybe I consider it. Like, so there is a lot of randomness, which I know some turns some people off, but I actually kind of enjoy it because it is kind of a way to like almost force the player to be experimental or to be inventive about like, okay, I've managed to obtain this. How can I make use of it? So I normally equip this character with two daggers, but instead I'll equip a, a dagger and a sword so I can try out this ability and see if it's useful or, or things like that. Um, or, of course, you can just keep crafting daggers and maybe eventually you get to a point where you know specifically which weapon ability you want and you just kind of keep rolling for it until you get it. So I, I feel like when I say rolling, it almost makes me think of like gotcha game. <laughs> that, that, that's not what I'm going for. I mean, like, oh, no. when, when, yeah, you cra- really- when you craft mm-hmm. things, you kind of get a you get a, a specific uh, rollout of like the stats and the inherent bonuses and the weapon hit abilities uh, available to that weapon. So. It is a sort of game that I feel like obviously there are quests that give you specific weapons or specific like unique artifacts where it's like everyone who does this side quest will get this bow or this this dagger. But there is also a lot of randomness where it's like there's there's a bit of emergent storytelling where like I was using a uh, a vanguard and I end up finding this really great shield that doesn't have a high you know defense stat but has a really high bludgeoning power when used as a weapon or whatever. And someone would be like, well, I never found that, but I ended up getting this really cool dagger-sword combo or whatever. So I feel like there's a sort of thing where different playthroughs will feel differently just depending on what you end up with or what you end up looking into, which I always think is really cool rather than if you replay this game, you end up just doing all the same things and you end up just going through the motions. Uh, kind of on a more well, of a... you. Go ahead. Yeah, well, like for people who like can get draw any comparisons, like if a person like this, the this type of game or this kind of kinds of games, like who would you recommend this game for? If you liked, I feel like this is the third or fourth time I've said this, but I, I think it is the most true, and it's the one that I keep drawing comparisons to in my head while I'm playing. If you like Divinity Original Sin, the combat of it, because Divinity Original Sin is a bit weird in terms of. CRPGs because it is purely turn-based. It's not this real-time with pause that Baldur's Gate or Pillars of Eternity or a lot of the sorts are. It is pure turn-based, and that's what this is. Oh, I, well, actually, let me take that back. It isn't pure turn-based. It's more like um, Final Fantasy Tactics, where every character on your squad gets a turn, and you can move them in any order. And it's even flexible enough where you... Uh, like. If let's say I have two characters on my side, a vanguard and an assassin, I can move the vanguard halfway. Then I can move the assassin all the like whatever his movement ability allows and have him attack and then finish the vanguard because he had movement squares left. So basically you can exhaust all of your characters on your side's um, abilities or movements or skills or whatever in whatever order you please. So anyone who's enjoyed divinity, anyone who's enjoyed, uh, 
I don't I kind of don't want to say like Final Fantasy Tactics. I guess it like at a fundamental level it's similar, but it just like at an aesthetic level, at a at a vibe level, speaking kind of generically here, uh, it feels way different. Um, yeah, but like the mechanics remind you of it, just to separate the mechanics from like the aesthetic and like the atmosphere of like what you would you'd expect like a Japanese RPG versus a Western RPG. And I will say though that like if you're looking for a really passionate, powerful, world shaking story. It's not here, not because the story here is bad, but it's just a little bit more functional where it's like we are sieging this town. We have to send a group of soldiers to infiltrate and destroy the town's catapults or whatever. So then the map ends up being like really intricate because the objective is not to defeat enemy soldiers is to very quickly move across the map and destroy these uh, constructions that were the 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 way that you approach that tactic or that strategy is different but the story behind it is just kind of there to 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 give you the motivation for what the it's battle more, is it's like more of a premise novelty it's like you don't see many rpgs in this space that are like take place like in ancient rome right more these days anyway so if, you, if you're itching for that kind of game then this looks to be a really solid one from like what you're saying and from a lot of like people are saying this seems to have like a very, very, it's very, very held in high regard right now throughout reviews and to people playing. So the, this seems to be a, a good, solid one of these. And the, one of the things, this is kind of particular, but one of the things that I have to criticize a little bit is that you will get a lot of gear at this game. Like you'll do a couple battles and you'll look at your inventory and you'll have like a shit ton of daggers and swords. And there's a lot of item management involved. And when you have like your, I'm out, I'm at my inventory screen and I'm looking at my weapons and I'm trying to figure out if I got any, you know, if I want to do any adjustments or whatever. I look at my weapon screen and you can only sort them by like newest to oldest, oldest to newest, or type. You like you uh -huh. cannot you cannot sort by like rarity. You cannot sort just by like damage ability or whatever. And I remember I was playing. This is a bit of a weird uh, tangent, but I was playing um, the division, which even though I didn't like it at the time, it has like, it gives every item a gear score. Basically it's like, here is a, uh, an identification of the strength of this weapon based on its traits, based on how much damage it does or, and it's rarity or whatever. And even though I thought that was very formulaic, I almost kind of wish like there was something like that here because you might end up, if I'm looking at all my spears or whatever that I picked up, some of them, like there's a rarity tier, like there's worn spears, there's regular spears, there's good spears, and there's pristine spears or whatever, kind of like your your blue gear, your red gear, your rare gear, and your you know exotic gear or whatever from your typical Diablo-esque gear thing. But then like each of them has like a tier where it's like, here's how much damage it can do, or like this 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 one has these specific bonuses or these specific is there bonuses. Like no comparison between like your current equip gear and the one that you want to swap. You to? you like you no... can do that at the very least. You can like say okay. like how does this compare to your current equipment? And okay, uh, I'm never the sort of person that just says like a lot of times in a JRPG you'll have like an auto equip where it's just like focus attack or focus defense or balanced or whatever. And I, even though yeah, I would I never, never use that. that, I feel like in order to sell this game, I feel like I wish it had that option or something yeah. like that. Or I just felt like they they could add more capability in terms of like the gear management because you will have to enjoy micromanaging to some extent here if to play this game, which I do, which is fine, but I know not everyone does. 
so yeah, I will get, I'm going to keep playing through this. Uh, one thing that I have enjoyed is that when I went from the first act to the second act, so the first act takes place in the Mediterranean and the second act takes place in Northern Africa. And I've noticed that a lot of the gear, like the types of weapons that are that you end up collecting or acquiring or being able to craft is different. So it actually like sells the idea of you're in a different place now or whatever, like you're, the environment cool. has changed. Yeah, yeah. So that is like a nice attention to detail where it actually kind of makes you more motivated to say, like, I wonder what sort of, uh, you know, what sort of enemies I'm going to encounter in this act where it doesn't feel like it's just continuing the same story. It's almost like a separate chapter of the of a, of a larger like um mini series almost you so, have so that a sort of like uh idea like how long this game is uh let's see well it has three acts i'm pretty sure um i've played it for about i think 15 hours so i'm gonna guess like 40 to 40 to 60 oh, so hours it's nowhere near like pathfinder or something no like I, it's okay. it feels like it's gonna be briefer than that so yeah like 40 to 60 hours or so and it depends on how much you uh you do probably, but I haven't finished yet. Uh, okay. But yeah, it's, yeah. you know, I, I think it released at a really good time. If this released in February, I would have totally ignored it completely. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm stretching out for my wheelhouse a bit. I just figured like, uh, I've always mentioned that I've, that I've wanted to play. Like, I, I feel like I'm a broken record on these podcasts where I say like, I want to make time for this or that or this. And we're listening like, you know, fuck it. I'm going to do it. Just, why not uh and i've and it's a little bit different it's not something i normally play and i'm enjoying it a, a fair bit and hopefully uh it was interesting to listen to if it's the kind of the same boat for you guys where it's not something you normally hear uh get talked about on our podcast i like talking about it yeah and i know i've been playing it in the staff chat and people like chow have been uh, watching me play it so at least in that way they're experiencing it a bit um I don't. I, I will probably write up a review for it. I don't know to what extent or like how you know you know this. I, I don't know yet, but like I, it depends on kind of I guess on how I feel when I get to the end of the game. But uh, I at least wanted to give its its due diligence here because I'm not uh, really it, engaged in the combat by watching it, but I am kind of invested in the choices you make for the story perspective. Yeah, and it does have a bit of that. Um, and yeah, tactical RPGs sometimes can be hard to sell, like on a video form, uh, because a lot of it is just planning out your 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 strategy or whatever and it's not so it's not very flashy it is kind of dry but uh it is it is enjoyable to play it i mean i'm having a good time and i to be honest as soon as we're done recording this podcast i'll probably just uh, jump right back into it so last week uh, i know that both me and josh talked a little bit about the pc release of monster hunter rise uh, on my end i have not made enough time to get back to it because i've been playing expeditions rome uh, but just Josh, uh, I know that you've already played Rise and that you've kind of just like you mentioned last week how you're repeating sort of what you've done, only maybe changing up your weapons with the PC version of the game. Uh, are you are you still working your way through that or have you pretty much completed it? I'm, I'm done with Rise. I, I oh. got to I, I'm at HR 120 now um, because I was like doing some grinding out some other weapon sets. But I'm pretty much, you know, where I want to be before Sunbreak comes out this summer. And thank God that's a simultaneous release for the Switch and PC version. But um, so I was like, okay, well, you know, uh, Rise has, like, Rise doesn't really have that much content when you know what, like, you're kind of doing. So my friends and I were like, well, you know, we still want to play Monster Hunter, but Rise isn't really giving us, you know, there's nothing left for Rise for us uh, for the time being. So we're like, you guys want to play Generations Ultimate? Or like that does have uh, a shitload of content. 
generation which ultimate. i was gonna ask which oh, one is generations ultimate is that the 3ds one that's the that's the, the basically the compilation of like it, it released on switch but this like has like pretty oh, is, much is that every, is that the one that was called cross cross yeah yeah oh, okay yeah uh and that pretty much has like every monster in the series besides like some underwater ones i believe but they, it pretty much has like a shitload if not all of like the monsters from the series and we're like well let's fucking do it so um we, we just started barely started playing like i've i've played generations ultimate before we've all played old school monster Hunter before so we've we know what to do in it it's not like re-educating people how to like get acclimate acclimated to like how much harder used to be because obviously world and rise okay, okay. really as someone who's okay. only played sense world okay. like what does what does at a high level what does old school monster hunter mean all right uh, adam i uh, adam uh brian um uh, there's no uh, uh, things aren't separated into zones there's loading screens in between like the map that you're in they're all separated like one through zone one through nine that you see like on, on the map in world and rise like they have numbers by them yeah but there's yeah. no seamless transition to the zone there's like a loading zone here's part what here's says zone one zone two zone three and you have to go i travel through them through loading screens there's no like pathways to them when you're i don't know if i like that when you're mining uh like gathering materials you have to buy the pickaxes yeah there's no infinite pickaxe uh, and they, those have durability when you're uh, mining stuff. Your whetstones, those are consumables. So there's no infinite whetstone. You have to buy whetstones, and like, and if you want to sharpen, you have to like consume one of those whetstones. That you, you I think actually sounds pretty. Yeah, pretty. I I don't know if I like the zone thing. That uh, that to me just seems like a technological limitation, where yes. the whetstone and the pick seems more of a design consideration. Where it's like, hey, you gotta make sure you're outfitted properly, rather than just the game saying, "Don't worry about it, you're, you're good." <laughs> yeah, Gener- yeah, Generation Ultimate wasn't built for the Switch. It was. It's basically a a, a port of like the 3DS uh, game, but that and that 3DS had like a shitload of them, so it's just finally bringing it to, to a console. Um, other things. Oh. You have to make sure to paintball the monster to know where it is once you encounter it. Because when you go to the map, you have no idea where it is. And when you get to the map, it'll be all um, blacked out. And you have to remember to get the detailed map from the pickup chest. That'll actually give you the map of the zone. Until then, everything's blacked out. Um, And then when you encounter the monster, you have to make sure to paintball it. Because it'll go off to other zones. And sometimes it's not clear like if they fly off to another zone. Like, if you don't have a paintball on them, it won't show you on the map where they are at all. So the, the paintball gives them a little pink dot on your map that says where the monster is. I yeah. I, I don't like the zone thing. I love, or uh, I, this, this is weird, it's weird for me to say don't like or like when I've never played it. I don't like the idea of the zone thing. I like the idea of the managing your like pickaxe or your gathering resources. The paintball thing, I I think I'm okay with the convenience of just tracking the monster. I I I don't know if I would I don't know if I would miss that. But Let's I'm also see. kind of speaking like hypothetically here. Yeah. Um. The the way your the way that things um like say stamina for example those tick down at a way faster rate than like what you're accustomed to in world like you run out of stamina pretty quickly relatively so you have to like be more attentive to like rations and like how and like 
increasing the cap on your stamina because those go, that goes down pretty fast. And you, it, everything is much more like deliberate and you have to be more paying attention because the monster does move slower, but like your positioning is much more important in these older ones than the 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 world in rise and obviously i haven't with... played a ton of rise but i i remember like i did use rations or like the cooked meat or whatever but it wasn't that often a lot of times uh, and i think it works differently in rise but in world i would just eat like the platter that gave you like plus 50 percent or not 50 percent plus 50 health and stamina and that was kind of yeah. like enough to take care of like okay don't need to worry about stamina really except for like so, some longer fights or whatever. You still you still you still eat in, in in these games and you do like get the uh buffs from them so you, so you kind of pay attention to like what buffs will give you them. Um but the think about like your stamina bar like like in the middle of a hunt like in Generations Ultimate like maybe like when you're like 3 to 4 minutes into it your stamina bar will be down by like 2 thirds. Uh, and then you're like, oh, okay, I have to go like do a ration or uh, eat meat. And then like uh, like extended hunts to like in G rank, um, you you'll be like, okay, this would actually want to like uh, you start like paying attention to like eating more meat uh, in them. So it just it, like like people really overblow like you know like oh the old school monster hunter was like so punishing and so like this and that compared like yes. Uh, World and Rise gave like uh, you know nice quality of life enhancements, but there's a certain charm that's sort of lost in certain way World and Rise like did gameplay enhancements as well, especially like the way they like kind of present themselves. Um, like in, in like one of the big changes World and Rise brought was when you're consuming a potion, you can move while you're consuming that potion, which you couldn't do in older Monster Hunters. But the trade-off is. When you're consuming a potion in them, you see that your health bar gradually fills up. So your health is actually filling up to to full or whatever that um, consumable uh, heals your health for. While in uh, Generations Ultimate and older Monster Hunter games, you consume a potion, but you cannot move dur- during them. But uh, but once you're fully done consuming them, it'll automatically just put it uh uh refill your health instantly. It's not gradually filling up. So to it's, that. it's it's discreet. Or whatever. What's that? It's discrete and not continuous. I'm using like mathy terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and then uh, what what people will trip up is like for uh, when you're consuming those as well in the older ones, like you do a flex after them, like a flex animation that like kind of takes some time to do as well. So you're you really have to be deliberate on like where you're using potions. Well, meanwhile, in World and Rise, they just have to pay attention to it, but you can still like move around in them as well. So I it's just. Yeah. And the reason for that is that the old games, because of those loading zones, the trick was always just get behind the loading zone, drink your potion, then hop back into the other loading zone. Yeah, yeah. So there's just a, the, like there's a, the way that the the older games present themselves. Like World and Rise are much more serious in tone, while in older ones, they're it's kind of it's kind of more fun and playful. I would say the 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 way I would describe them, which is. It, it was nice, and like I, I missed that from uh, older Monster Hunter, and like the 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 prep the the prep that you do for them is like it's cool that like you do have to like remember oh hey we're going into this type of zone bring like your cold cold and hot drinks uh, or you know if we're gonna go do a lot of like um, mining in this one it's an like, expedition tour make sure to bring a lot of pickaxes uh, for this one and, and like the, and there's. 
it just feels like really refreshing in a way to go back into old school Monster Hunter after playing a lot of World and Rise because I, I didn't get too far into Generations Ultimate and I I really wanna you know the, it's just the, it's just the perfect time right now because I'm still n- nothing has really hooked me uh, like caught my eye lately in terms of new games so I'm like this is like a good time to just like go settle on this and uh, I'll be honest like. Me and my friends all have Generations Ultimate on the Switch, but we're not playing this on the Switch because where we're playing this have a lot more, like, you know, the community have, has put forth a lot of good enhancements to, like, the emulated version of Generations Ultimate with, like, a 60 FPS mod, a 2K to 4K mod, and, like, it just runs and looks so good. Switch Pro, never? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um it's also crazy that like they got multiplayer working through emulators these days. So it's just fuck. <laughs> so it, it it's it's a nice you know the refresher and maybe I'll pitch something. A reminder of things that order. once were. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I'm kind of looking ahead. Like I I guess I'm really just waiting for Lost Ark at this point. I guess that's the next big release I'm gonna be uh, diving into. I know Pokemon for you. I don't know. I don't know. Someone has to tell me th- that it's good. I don't know, man. I see some leaked gameplay. I thought I was watching Souls. Shush, no, no spoiler. Wait, what? Hey. Hey, <laughs> hey yeah. Ciao. Come on. Come on. Well, uh, Josh might get a chance to talk about uh, Souls a little bit in a in a moment here. Uh, I promise that tease will pay off. <laughs> was there anything else that you had been playing this week or mostly just in a holding pattern waiting for uh, Lost Ark? Yeah, just the holy pattern. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been still uh, playing another Eden. That's in my mobile game of choice. Um, and Princess Connect. I mean, the Princess Connect is celebrating its first anniversary on the global version. So that's been like it, it's kind of like I like playing Princess Connect Redive because that's like one of the few community community things we do here at RPG Site. Where obviously I'm the only one playing it here, but uh, we do have a, a guild over at RPG Site for that game, and everyone's always been very friendly very supportive uh because there's a you know once a month there's a thing called clan battle in that game and we all participate like uh in that uh event uh monthly so it's been it's one of the very few things we do here at rbg site with like the community stuff but you know we could we should we could be doing better but it's been very busy for us uh, with a small staff group so it's it's nice to like kind of reflect back and see like it's been cool that i've been able to keep that uh rpg site uh guild running in that game for over a year now and people are still having a blast in it you know and and, and i'm not the type of person that's like oh you have to that there are there are definitely guilds out there for that game where they're like oh you have to like ha- roll on this banner and like keep competitive and stuff I'm like you know we're all we're chill there we rank pretty okay and like that's fine with us we're happy where we're at and just want to make sure that like hey if you got things going on that's totally cool uh there's no there's no pressure on you to like be super competitive at this thing. It's just like, you know, just come hang out, have fun. No, it's been, it's been really cool to see that you've been able to keep that together. And, uh, I jump into our, our Mobage channel on our discord, discord.com slash RPG site. And just, just to read in, cause it's not, it's not an area of gaming that I'm involved in that much, but it's just cool just to see the passion and the ex- be vicariously excited for uh, all the stuff that you guys are doing in there. So one last question. Is there a lot of freebies for one year anniversary for Princess Connect? The rollers out there. Um, there is. Like, yeah, the like um this would be a a, a good place to like 
time to start because they do give you like a free 10 roll off the bat and we do have like some like good banners coming this year so i mean it's not it's never like a bad time to start princess connect and it's but but it's one of those games where you like you're not like super super like rewarded from the get-go it's more of a gradual game that like you kind of keep up with over time like the freebies are nice but like you you accrue those over time rather than like given to you all at once and the the, the the way that character progression works in that game is something that like you don't have to be super like always on top of you know you just do what you can and progress at your own pace leisurely so like uh, for people who like uh like a lot of us at the at the guild who play daily and have been there since like soft launch you know where there there are still things that like we still feel rewarded for the time that we put in to that because we're we're, we're thinking like okay it, it's the type of game where it's not like a a one team solves all there's always different problems that you tackle in the game with different groups of characters so that's kind of the allure of the game is a lot of the the strategy planning behind okay this the, this boss does this so what characters do i have that can like counter this sort of like boss mechanic so that that's kind of the 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 nice things about it uh, from a gameplay perspective is like there's always different problems to solve with new content coming out and it's like okay we know in in japan that bosses came in uh that did this mechanic so we're starting to plan around like ahead of like okay we're, we're gonna start uh, thinking of the of teams and characters to build up that have these certain skills that will counter this mechanic later on so james and chow i think chow you have written here something that you've been playing that i have no idea what this is valis collection okay so i'll teach me what this is uh we'll give you a brief history uh valis collection is a platform game that was originally made for the pc 8801 uh it's got remade several times but um the best version is the pc engine version it's how do i describe it it's a very good platform for its day um but obviously they weren't as successful as mario so eventually the the IP got sold to some some other company and they just turned it into a bunch of arrow gays instead of a platform game. <laughs> but anyways, uh, the history is that they went back, uh, I think some of the original founders of the, of the company, of the game, started a Kickstarter to get their franchise back and they made a port of their, of their games from the PC Engine. That's basically a brief rundown of it. Yeah, the like uh, I think the original uh, developer was like Telenet, I believe. Yeah, right, Telenet. Yeah, Telenet, and then, and then Sunsoft bought the rights. Like, not it wasn't even that uh, long ago, right? It was like, yeah, the Kickstarter is not that long ago, and they they actually had a very successful Kickstarter. I think they they rose like like a million like dollars USD or something like that just to make like. Like yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah I'm, I'm trying, remember, trying yeah. to find the yeah. Kickstarter page right now. Yeah. 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 So, so Telenet shut down in, in 2007. Sunsoft acquired them then, and then the the latest acquisition was from Idea, uh, and that was just barely in like the end of 2019. Uh, their the, Kickstarter, you won't find it on Kickstarter because they used the Japanese version of Kickstarter. I forgot what the name is. So. Oh, uh, so, so, so you just mean crowdfunding in general? Then. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I mean. Uh, I, I don't mean as in like the psychic star. I mean like crowdfunding. Okay. But, okay, yeah. and, and then for people who don't know Valis, this is like a visual novel series. It wasn't really a visual novel be- well, before. 
yeah it's um it was just a platformer uh it's okay. it has a very uh simple storyline it's mm-hmm. uh was it? it's about a, a high school girl getting isekai and just turns into like a like a warrior beating shit out of the bad guys. Oh uh, yeah, back yeah. <laughs> before before we got turned into like a hentai. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, basically that's what it was. Uh, we have the ports of these games, and I guess people are kind of disappointed about the this port because I was missing the fourth game. Uh, oh really? Oh. That's, uh, that's I'm saying that, that it actually it actually got like a physical release from limited run games actually. Okay. Yeah. Well, why is it missing the fourth game? Because obviously you have the Phantasm Soldier, which is the first, then two, three. Like, what I'm like, why not the fourth game? That's why I'm wondering. It's like, why are they missing the fourth game? And people are criticizing this port being lazy because it's missing the fourth game. But another way you could see it is that in the fourth game, we got different protagonists. So, but but it's it's weird because there have been like releases of Valis that does have the fourth game, like the compilation releases. Like yes, the there was like, a there was a compilation release on the PC back in the day yeah. that had the fourth game, and now everyone's just wondering why didn't they port the fourth game? It's not like it's hard to find the ROM for it, <laughs> you know. They already got emulated that plays PC Engine games on this, you know, port, right? So why is the fourth game missing? Yeah, and and like it's not just those four games because you do have Super Valus Four, which is actually a different game despite being called Valus Four. And that was on Super Nintendo. Yeah, uh, how I would see that is like the Castlevania X for Super Nintendo versus Rundle of Blood. The Super Nintendo yeah. would be would be that version where you've got cut content or levels been reworked, and you know, and and different soundtrack because one has CD music and one is the soundtrack music, so the composition is different, right? Yeah, and then and then they had uh, like an SD. What was it called? Uh... Like um, there's like SD Valus, but I forgot. What yeah, there's called. an SD Valus for the Genesis, uh, Genesis, where you play like a chibi version of the protagonist going through things. It's like a retelling of the original game, just with chibi. I, I, like I was, I was thinking, it was like, is it a remake of one or two? I'm trying to remember. I, I yeah. think it's one. Uh, I think one has like the most popularity that they remade it several times. So if you bought this collection, one is the best game out of this collection because this is actually like. It's like fourth remake or something like that, right? Versus the other two is just like they're straight up, you know, number two. It's like, was it uh, like yeast? It's like this is like wonder of yeast. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Chow. I I got to shoot you down here. I I did so. I, I did research. Like as you were talking, it, it is a remake of two, not one. Or oh, yeah. Rip. yeah. But it's Sid of Valis because I was thinking because I was trying to remember the the name of it. But yeah, but it, it's it's one of those things. It's like. So, okay, I guess it's it's weird that it's missing form nonetheless. This new release, do, do they have any? Have they announced any plans to like uh, revisit Valus Four, Super Valus Four, and uh, like SD? I don't know where this is going. It has this very okay. successful crowdfunding uh, campaign, so I'm okay. just wondering like what direction of the series go. Are they going to remake another game or make a new sequel again? I I just I'm just curious, you know. I mean, they has there been have any? A, has there been any like announcements of like this coming out of the Switch? It's like it was gonna kind of come out to other platforms or just the Switch? Mm, I just heard it just for the Switch, but Weird. but uh, what is it? Limited Run Games is doing um, what is it? They're doing like the English localization and releasing the physical copies of that. So I don't know. Maybe there's some has Limited Run Games done localizations before, or somebody is doing it. I don't know. They just I don't, I don't know who like they. they... 
they don't have any translators in house, but they technically did the localization for the Vita and Switch versions, Fata Morgana. Okay. The uh, Vita and Switch versions had the additional uh, epilogue story that was, um, ex- I think it's still exclusive to the Vita and Switch versions in the West, and you can't actually get it on PC yet. Oh, yeah. interesting. Has there been like any news that like or any intent to bring those two? I believe they want to eventually, but there's like I I think whoever did the original like ports in Japan for them kind of like I do believe that they want to get them get it ported, but as of right now it's only on console. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How how are the port uh ports of uh the Valus collection on Switch? Like is the emulation good on them or are they, are they it's good? it's serviceable. I wouldn't call it top tier emulation, but it's serviceable. Well what sort of issues are you running into with that? I, I just feel it's kinda of like bare bones with like display settings, you know, and stuff. Oh, right? okay. You know, it's like with an emulator, you get on PC, you could tweak it however you want. Right. And these days Literally, you could just buy a Chinese handheld knockoff and it'll emulate anything up to like PS One, right? So, so uh, the entire time that you guys have been talking, I've been just like watching some gameplay of Valus Two and like reading some like announcements of the limited run things. You guys are saying that Valus Four and Super Valus Four are different games. Is that correct? Yes, they're different uh, games. Uh, basically, in Four, um, you play as three different protagonists. You start with two, but as the game go on. Uh, you'll meet a third protagonist, and you can just kind of switch between them, and they have different abilities. Like one, one of the girls that you play in that game uses a slingshot, and she's more agile. The other one is, was it uses a sword, and it's a little bit slower than the other character. And the third character is like a powerhouse dude, and he's just like clunky to use. But the reason the reason why I asked for like uh, explanation on that is because I guess uh, with the Nintendo Switch Online, like Super Valus Four is one of the ones from the Super Nintendo collection. That you can play, uh, yeah. but not Valus Four, just Super Valus Four. No. Super Valus Four is a it's a it's a crappy version. I promise you that. Oh, okay. It, you only get to play as one character, which is the main protagonist with the sword. So that, so, that so right it. so right now, like with this collection, you can play one, two, and three on the Switch. You can, if you're a Nintendo Switch Online subscriber, you can play Super Valus Four, just not Valus Four. That's the one out. The, the yep. one left out. <laughs> That's missing for some odd reason. If you were to make a new Valus game, what would it look like, Chow? Um, I don't know. I, I find it's like very. I think the reason why it probably turned to Rogi because it had a lot of fan service because the protagonist is wearing like just like a bikini armor. That's it, but a sword, right? I mean, that's yeah. That, that was that was definitely the PC Engine aesthetic back in the day. It was that was dime a dozen. It's pretty detailed. If you actually played the remake of the first game, it's very detailed in the frames. It just mm-hmm. look at it. But I don't know. If I was doing a remake, I would probably go with the what is it, the Wonder Boy kind of approach. Just focus more on its 2D aesthetic and just work it from there, keeping the charm of the original games. That's, that's why I would take it. So I think that covers us for games that we've been playing, uh, unless James has something here to surprise us with, not to put him on the spot. Sorry, James. Surprise us. <laughs> I cleared uh, P2 Savage. There you go. That's you Congratulations. Can you can join me in P3. We can... Oh, God. Uh, what data center are you on again? <laughs> Ether. We'll oh. wait for data transfers. Yeah, just wait three days. <laughs> then we can suffer together. There you go. Congratulations on your on your clear. 
I, I hear it. Uh, it's the, it seems like people are just. It's it's a new it's a everyone's I hear a new shout every day of like oh man how what are, what are they suffering through today on fourteen? Uh, I think the most I suffer through is E twelve back when before Ed Walker came out. That was the greatest video game fight in history. I will laugh at any player that refuses to do this because it's too hard because you're missing out the greatest video game fight in history. <laughs> That's high praise. Yeah, but honestly, like. One thing I've realized with with the Savage fights is that they're honestly not that bad. The it, problem it, is finding a group that's competent and doesn't make mistakes. And it's like, P2 Savage, I kept running into groups where it's like they weren't make, making the DPS check. And I know that my DPS is fine. And it's like, this isn't that strict of a check. As long as we do the mechanics right, we should be able to clear... What's wrong with everyone? No, it's a pretty tight DPS check. The first time I cleared it, we actually spanned double DPS limit break to kill the boss the first time. Mm. Uh, the DPS check's a lot, lot less uh, harsh now because everyone has better gear. But when the first day I came, it was like, oh my god, you need double DPS <laughs> limit break to survive. And there's one part near the end where the boss gets the whole entire group separated and you had to get back to this one ah, spot yes, in time. Yeah, and everyone just dies there. And people yeah. are wondering, should I save the tank limit break to survive this part, or should I save the, the DPS limit break? Because if we don't use the DPS limit break, we might not kill this boss. But if we don't use the tank limit break, we all might die at this part. So what do you honestly, use? Honestly, it's not that bad. As long as the tank share like saves their uh, party-wide mitigation for that uh, final line AoE, it's fine. Just... Like, if it's a warrior, shake it off. If it's a paladin, just use the shield. If it's a gunbreaker, heart of light. If it's a dark knight, everyone dies. Classic MMO problems, right, Brian? Uh, if you say so. <laughs> yeah, who brings a, uh, a paladin to their party groups anyways? Honestly, though, for the mitigations for the line stack, it, it, it's not the worst one you could bring. I promise you guys, anytime that you play a Final Fantasy XIV game, just don't play the canon job class that you see in the cinematics. They always end up to be the worst job class. I assure you, I, I, I will, I will oh. never play FF14 again. I assure well, here's, you. Well, here's the thing, Chow. They said that Paladin's going to be buffed with the next patch, so give it a few days. Who knows? Maybe Paladin will be the new best uh, tank. Uh, we'll, we'll wait and see. So going into the news section, uh, before we hit the major headline that we had briefly introduced at the top here, uh, we do have two features up on the site uh, from the last week, uh, one of which is one that Alex Donaldson put up just, you know, basically at the time of this recording, like within the last day. And that is, I guess he got his hands on, um, what is it, the analog pocket? Yes. Basically, he's been playing the Game Boy Advance versions of Final Fantasies 4, 5, and 6. And now he's making the argument here on a feature on RPG site that says that this is the definitive way to play those games ahead of the Pixel remasters that released last year, or I guess six still has yet to release. Uh, and basically, if you, <laughs> I don't know, the, the whole premise is that if you've got, if you're playing the Game Boy Advance versions of these Final Fantasy games on the new analog pocket, that that is preferable to playing the Pixel remasters, which, uh, 
the Game Boy Advance games are the ways that I experienced Final Fantasies four, five, and six. So like I don't have a leg to stand on, but I do know that those games were criticized for like their soundtrack and like um, their audio. Fix that with ROM hacking. So I wonder, I wonder if you can do that in conjunction with playing it on the uh, on the analog. Uh, I will tell you, there's a system that's better to play those than the analog pocket. It's Dang, called- I was already calling out Alex here. <laughs> it's called the RGB ten, and uh-huh. you set that up. It looks like a legitimate Game Boy SP 101. It's better than the analog uh, Are we getting uh, sponsored for this? No, sadly not. Not unless Raid Shadow Legends calls us. (laughs) But, um, yeah, go on, Brian. Before Chow is like, well, fuck the analog pocket. Well, uh, it, just seems, not... it just it just seems like a very specific like so obviously like Alex's opinion is his opinion and you should go and read it because it, it is interesting to say like here's an alternative because obviously like the pixel remasters are only on PC and mobile like they're like mm-hmm. so here's maybe an alternative if you if if it's something that you were interested in the analog pocket anyway it's just one of those things where it's like you know maybe maybe it's time for another playthrough of Final Fantasy V because I have the GBA cart or or whatever um, like I, I was just gonna say if you can patch these games. There will be the most definitive version to play. That's in my opinion because you could get the S, the Super Nintendo colors without having the game looking washed out, and you could get the sound somewhat restored to what they sound like in Super Nintendo. Because I think that's my biggest issue. If you're just playing the legitimate version, is just the soundtrack is too it's too downsampled that it doesn't sound like how you remember it. So. So it's the age-old problem of these games don't have a definitive version, except for like this really narrow niche of like if you play an edited ROM of the GBA version on an analog pocket or or, or whatever Shadow's alternative is, that's the definitive version. It's not convenient, but there it is. I mean, all it takes is a Google search. It wouldn't be that hard. I'm yeah. Sorry. So, so yeah. So that that's a feature up on the site, and it's always cool to get a chance to talk about you know those games. And we're gonna be talking about Final Fantasy VI. I'm I'm sure. Uh, once I mean, it's yeah, the crux of this, he, like, he, like we're burying the lead with Alex's thing, but like the the main thing he's he's pitching forth is like, hey, the advanced versions have a lot of content that was not in the mixed pixel remasters versions. They had a lot of add-ons to them, like the you know the dinosaurs st- stuff in uh, Final Fantasy two and the new jobs in FF five and the the extra espers in FF six. Like it's just, it was just one of those things. It's like. Hey, these are really cool additions that we wish the Pixel Remasters had that uh, obviously do not have. And what you're getting out of that is, you know, there's less game in those Pixel Remasters, but, you know, they did a really great uh, job at, like, remastering uh, the OSTs for them. Like, a lot of these new remastered versions are, like, they're awesome. But you do get less content because that goes... The pixel remasters, like the crux of the pixel remasters, is hey, the content is like from the original, original release releases uh, of the uh, classic FF games. But can you even say that's true? Because how FF one and two kind of got their system t- a little bit reworked, sort of. I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, like you're t- totally right. Like from uh, uh, gameplay mechanics, they were very much overhauled. Uh, and definitely not as difficult as they were back then because of the way the, the they updated the gameplay systems. And you know, they're still waiting for FF6 Pixel Remaster as well. Should it be out in a few weeks. Yeah. 
And the other feature up on the site in the last week is one that Josh put together. Uh, and this is coming off of the rumors of the potential new entry of an Armored Core game in that series, which I have only played two of, but I know Josh has played more and had some thoughts on what a new Armored Core game might look like and what it might not or should not look like. So Josh, uh, how excited are you for the uh, potential and possibility for a new game in the Armored Core series? I mean, I, either way, I'm excited to see like what it looks like. If, it, if, it, if the rumors are true and From Software is making the Armored Core series a bit more like their Dark Souls series, like I'm interested to see like what their ideas are in doing that. I'm just in this um, feature that I wrote up is for me personally, I don't know how that comes together while keeping what I like armor about Armored Core as Armored Core, because there are definitely things about Armored Core that I like, I enjoy, and like part of that series' identity. Uh, just to quickly sum it up on here is like part of it is like the mission based structure and how that's how the soundtrack. Um, complements the the gameplay structure of that game because like you know they're very simple games in terms of like plot you're like you're part of this mercenary group and they're very versatile about like the the way that the missions that they're able to kind of accept and the the way the storytelling is done in those games like it's very not up in your face it's very it happens in the background as sort of like you're experiencing the events of like things unfolding instead of like looking back as some sort of like big exposition exposition about how things are unfolding in that game so like i i i start to think about like you know there just like how i was talking about princess connect back then of like there are there are there's content in that game where there's no like one easy answer like you know when you think about dark souls games people have builds like hey i'm gonna have like great sword build i'm gonna have like or i'm gonna tackle good magic and like these are my strategies for out pretty much the whole game because it's all skill based of like how well I can do perform with this certain like build that I'm doing. But on Armored Core, especially the older ones, you don't have like a a sort of one build beats all. There'll be certain like missions or certain roadblocks in your way that you kind of have to accustom or tweak your parts and uh tackle it in a different way than you would like in sort of previous missions. So I'm just thinking like if they bring it in a in a more souls format like I would hope that they would uh, like keep it in tune with the spirit armor core where I'm certain like constantly switching out parts to uh for the needs of a mission rather than like hey here's my build it beats everything and that that was certainly the case like with certain like armored core 4 and on there were there definitely builds were like well, I uh, the, the this thing can beat everything, and I'm like, I don't really want that out of like Armored Core. I want something where I have to constantly improvise and compromise uh, to suit the, the the needs of a mission. And uh, so I kind of go this long form sort of like article of like here are specific examples in previous Armored Cores where like this sort of thing wouldn't really suit a Souls game. So I kind of where, where it's where it's more like setting up loadouts for saying this mission I need uh, beam rifles because it's everything takes place in in an interior or this mission it's in an open space so I need some lock on missiles I, I've only played two of the games uh, so my armored core experience is a little bit uh, 
less it's uh, and it's that fringes of my memory here but I, yeah. I remember sometimes you're in an area where you have to make sure that your chassis is light enough because it involves a lot of flying and hovering around and covering a lot of ground quickly and then there were some missions where it's like well you're going to be running through corridors so that doesn't matter as much so you can build up a lot more armor and have like beam rifles rather than rockets or, or whatever and yeah. where in dark souls it's just kind of like i'm deciding i'm using uh, a sword and shield or an uchi katana and then from that point on, it's just learning the strategy for the fight that suits your weapon rather than the other way around saying, like, I'm going to change my loadout to suit the fight. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, they kind of have, like, conflicting, conflicting like, design philosophies uh, in that respect. So that's why I kind of think about, like, how does that work then? And, and especially, like, like you mentioned, um, I, I call out in the article as well, it's like, how does the map, how would a map look like for this sort of, like, armored uh, or souls-esque armored core because you know these things fly can like reach up to ridiculous speeds so like how big would the map need to be to like make it feel satisfying to like traverse without sacrificing that sense of speed um like and well if they were to like bump up the scale of the map like what sort of sacrifices would you have to make uh to, to make it like you know obviously a bigger map doesn't always mean like it'll be like sprawling with like life and like you know sometimes you have to like, like okay be more barren to accommodate this map size one of my favorite parts of even though i played it 20 years ago one of my favorite parts of armored core 4 answer which is like a ps2 game that i played i never played armored core 2 or whatever the other armored core 2 was but yeah, i played I 4 or not sorry not for answer yeah. um armored core 2 another age okay um, yeah yeah and it and I, I assume most armored cores are set like this, where it's like you, you go out on individual sorties where it's like this sortie takes place in this particular region of the map, but you and you might end up revisiting that particular area two or three or four times underneath a different like objective. And it it conveys the passage of time where it's like, remember when you defended this place from whatever other faction? Well, this is what happened in you know, the next month after they had established control and now you're, you're, you've are you switched sides because you have a different contractor now or whatever. And that's not something that uh, a traditional Souls map can do where it can't really progress the passage of time in a location because it just it's just fixed. Yeah. So something like that I feel like is... Uh, and yeah, obviously the storytelling like that wasn't at the forefront of Armored Core, but it was there where it's like, oh, I remember when I when I first was in this area and my weak robot uh, or my weak mech in one of the earliest sorties of the game, and now I'm here on the other side because I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting to a different group and they've built up all these battlements or whatever that I have to work through. And it's, 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 it's A, smart from a design standpoint because they can reuse the environment and just continue to tell a story there. But then, if this is like some interconnected souls-like map, I'm not sure you could really do that anymore. It just it just is what it is, and it's like fixed in time. Yeah. I don't know. So like, yeah, it's just yeah, it's just one of those things. I uh, like, I'm still interested if this like if the rumors turn out to be true. I'm very interested to see like how that comes together. And that, uh, like I mentioned, Argyle, like, it's not something that I would dismiss off the bat. Obviously, I'd be very excited and to see how that comes together. But you know, but I think about Armored Core, there are certain things I want out of Armored Core. So mm -hmm. it's just, uh, you know, give it a read uh, if you have time, like, you know, if you're interested to see my thoughts about, like, how would that come together and what, what sort of, like, thoughts I have uh, in terms of, like, well, how does that work then? Because, you know, I played through Armored Cores, I, I love them, um, and I, would, I wouldn't want from software to 
<laughs> souls it up, so to speak, too much. Yeah. And that covers us for features up on the site. No new reviews uh, as of this week. And we'll jump straight into the, the big headline that we've already alluded to and already kind of discussed about a, a tiny bit. And that is that uh, on the Xbox Wire news feed in a new blog post, uh, CEO Phil Spencer has announced that Activision Blizzard and King will be joining Xbox Microsoft's gaming division with a new deal to the tune of about $70 billion that will complete or that is planned to complete in 2023, which would basically put these properties underneath the Xbox Microsoft banner Overwatch, Diablo, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, anything Warcraft, Candy Crush, and Starcraft. Uh, we've already talked about how this compares to the Bethesda deal, which seemed like such a huge thing at the time, but somehow was dwarfed by this. And this is, of course, coming across the heels or coming across on the heels of the basically the all of the turmoil at Activision Blizzard about the accusations of impropriety, harassment, uh, gender inequality and things like that. So I don't know about you guys, but despite the fact that this Activision Blizzard acquisition announcement is so titanic. Like, I feel a bit numb to it at this point. Like, I don't know if, like, the fact that we've seen this already with first Obsidian and Exile, like, two or three years ago, then Bethesda a year ago, and now this, despite the like the sheer dollar quantity being so ginormous <laughs> compared to that, it's about a 10x, like, the, uh, Bethesda deal was what seven billion, and this is seventy billion. Despite that, like at this point, I just feel like I don't know if I. It almost seems even less interesting to me. Like, or of course they've got Activision Blizzard. Like, I feel almost numb to it at this point. I don't know if you guys feel the same, or if you guys are uh, latching onto it more strongly just because that the the scope and the scale of these things has just continued to increase the amount of corporate consolidation. I woke up to it. I was a Tuesday or Wednesday morning. Like I, that was like the, like I woke up and I was like, and that was the first thing I saw. I was like, Oh my God, really? <laughs> like I wasn't numb to it because I was just like, I barely woke up and I was like, huh, that's I, in a way I was like, I was like, I wasn't sure if it was real at first. It was like, that's crazy. That's weird to think about uh so early on and i was like that's they've taken up so many properties under the umbrella now of microsoft that is and thinking about like what does that mean and thinking and i'm like thinking through it i was like at the very least this is better than the status quo that they have at the moment because when you think about how activision and how blizzard have been op operating like on activision's end they've pretty much Outside of like say like publishing deals like Securo, which is like a one-off, their uh, their business plan and their business strategy has been let's make Call of Duty as big as it could be because we're banking everything on Call of Duty being successful, and it has been, you know. But is that sustainable? I don't as, know. As someone who doesn't play Call of Duty, I used to still always felt like that I had a good latch on the yearly releases like oh this is the call of duty game this year like around the time of like advanced warfare and then world war uh infinite warfare like early 2010s and then like the, the new world war ii game but then as soon as call of duty warzone released i feel like i no longer know like 
was there a Call of Duty game last year? Because Warzone was a year and a half ago. Vanguard. Vanguard. Like for some reason, I, like even though I don't play those games, I always used to feel like I knew what was going on. But now that the fact that they're making, they're 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 both to me, it seems like they're having annual releases while also really leaning into the games as a service thing. So I, to me, it's just really muddied. Like, are people right now Call of Duty fans? Are they playing Vanguard or are they playing Warzone? Are uh, it's well, both are incredibly successful. I, I like. I hear more about Warzone, but the, I'm sure Vanguard is doing. It still has a very, very healthy population of people. But that that's the but that's the weird thing. It's like Activision doesn't really have anything else under their umbrella besides Call of Duty these days, and it's very. I, I imagine it's very, very hard in their current strategy to like push new games through because I imagine upper management is like. Will it be as successful as Call of Duty? And obviously, you're, you're, when you're a dev- if you're a developer there, it's like, well, no. But you have to like concoct an argument to them or a, a sort of pitch that says it will be as successful as Call of Duty to get your project through, you know. Um, and you have to include different ways and different systems and different ways to monetize it. To be as successful as Call of Duty, even though you know it's not to be as successful as Call of Duty, you have to pitch it that it'll be as successful as Call of Duty, and that sucks. You know that obviously stifles you know innovation. It stifles the types of variety that because Activision has so much IP under their belt. Like it was, it's it, it the ways they had to like pitch like how are you gonna pitch like these Tony Hawk remakes, you know under them and it, that that was a miracle in itself to come together and release uh because it wasn't call of duty so with this you know one and and phil spencer has already come out and said like under us we i do want to reevaluate and revisit old ips and that's something that's pretty cool you know because we would like to see other things besides call of duty under activision yeah, Guitar Hero. Bring back Plastic Instruments. See if that that'll make come back. Hexen, you know, um, uh, and obviously more Tony Hawk. Uh, bring back NeverSoft, and that's an interesting thing to think about under Microsoft. Is if you know when Activision Blizzard King um, come under Microsoft, will Microsoft be releasing things just under a company or developer name? Like say the next. Call of Duty was it just act is just Activision, the Activision Blizzard, just Activision, and then say the next thing from Blizzard, say like Diablo Four, will it just be under Blizzard, not Activision Blizzard, just the Blizzard name? Yeah, that's so, tr- so trying to focus this on an RPG slant, like we really only have two avenues here. It's not cl- it's not obviously as clear cut as it was for either Obsidian or Bethesda, which we had a clearly vested interest in. For for the Activision Blizzard, it's diablo and warcraft and warcraft it had the i never really followed up on like the hoopla with the warcraft remastered like i felt like that crashed and burned uh from a year ago but then like it's weird to think that world of warcraft is a microsoft or it will be a microsoft product now and it also we makes me wonder about, game pass <laughs> yeah it makes me wonder about like the future of BattleNet because microsoft over the last two years has really been trying to like change and adjust their perception on the pc front in terms of their xbox app and uh game pass on pc which just got rebranded late last year for to pc game pass um but then obviously battle.net is well established and has been for two decades and then diablo 4 is 
kind of embattled in its own right, where we I feel like we keep hearing about studio departures like Louis Bariga and uh, I forget his first name, but McCree like left the studio late last year and like Diablo four, I feel like a year ago I was excited for it. But then after all the allegations and the scandals and the fact that the game itself just seems to be in a bit of a development hell, like right now I'm not looking forward to, nor have I followed up on like, what is the current status of Diablo four? I kind of put it in the same bucket as like dragon age. Like once I see like a real trailer or some real marketing for it, I don't, I'm not interested in following it because I don't trust that anything I see now will even like, persist through the game's eventual release if it releases so yeah, and 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 that's the that's the weird thing like like how this acquisition even happened you know it's just the when you think about the state of activision and the state of blizzard like blizzard had to delay overwatch 2 and diablo 4 indefinitely we do not know when those games will release at this point because of the, all the departures and the current state of like all the allegations made for the state of california which have turned out to be very fucking true and just all this despicable shit as like been brought forth at Activision Blizzard King, just all the practices that have come up and all the news stories that have come up, it just it just has been really really rotten and uh, throughout all that it just the, their future wasn't looking good despite Call of Duty reaching once again like record numbers and doing very well especially on the PlayStation end, um, like I think like it was the most sold game last year uh, for PlayStation side. Um, like just the the future of them wasn't looking good, and I from what I understand, like you know, felt like from Jeff Grubb uh, at from Games Beat and like Giant Bomb and like the things that he's heard on the inside, like this deal for for Microsoft acquiring uh, Activision Blizzard King, like this didn't really come together. Like the process of it has really hasn't come together till like. October, November. It's been very recent. So that's not like, like on the inside, you know, speculating, of course, but like there were meetings that like Microsoft was taking like on, on Christmas Eve. And it's like, why the fuck are they taking meetings at Christmas Eve? And why is there so many things going on? It's like, this is, this is why it was uh, happening is for them to acquire them. And that's crazy to think of like, of course, companies are always speaking to other companies about uh, buying them and acquiring them. And like uh, the, People are always thinking about like and having talks about like on the inside of like like you know would you be interested like you know in buying like you know being sold to us and whatnot, but I imagine these talks were always happening like you know for many years now, but for it to come together so quickly, so quickly like the actual process of it to just be several months ago, that's crazy if that's actually true of like and I can believe it that it's actually true. Especially, like, you know, Kodak will say whatever he wants. I'm like, oh, the reason, like, this house goes, like, you know, share prices were going down and whatnot. But the real reason, we all know, is, like, it's just all the bad shit that's been happening. Yeah. And I mean, the, the reputation's in the gutter. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine Phil and the leadership team at Microsoft was like, hey, this is a really big prime time for us. There's, like, a once-in-a-blue-moon acquisition, like, window or, like, opportunity of like just buying these and getting these under our belt, no matter the cost. You know, this is like if we if we don't act on this now, this opportunity will never come again, if not for a very very long time. So uh, I imagine how it's went down. It's like the, obviously the board of directors at Activision Blizzard King not in a very happy spot of like where they are at the moment, and it's like okay, Kodak 
what's your fucking price for this? Just name us a price, and then we'll jump on it, we'll negotiate, and then we'll just get this as fast as possible. And this is that. This is what it will take. So this deal does not close, as uh, Brian mentioned, but to give a for like you know a more firm release or not for a firm date. Um, it, it like this will not close till the end of Microsoft's fiscal year, which is at June twenty twenty three. So, and obviously Microsoft cannot legally say whether Kotick will be out when this deal closes. But there have been many developments and insiders, I think Bloomberg reported it, that like from what they heard on the inside. Uh, is yes, as soon as this deal closes, Kotick is out as CEO. And obviously, Kotick himself is not just the problem. Yes, he is a big part of the problem, but obviously, leadership at Activision Blizzard King uh, and the board of directors being Kotick's butt buddies, you know, they are part of the problem as well. So I imagine, hopefully, Kotick is not the only one out. Hopefully, there's more of the upper problematic leadership out as well. Uh, unfortunately it'll unfortunately involve probably a giant golden parachute yeah Uh, but i mean it's if if it's that if it's that or keep them in place i don't know those are the only two options yeah Um, and then dovetailing off of this announcement is that uh this is like a day or so after the acquisition was first revealed or the plans for the acquisition was first revealed is that one of the studios underneath Activision is Raven Software, which works on Call of Duty Warzone. Raven Software has like 300 employees, um, specifically their QA department, their testing group. Uh, 34 testers have uh, basically received a majority of signatures within their department to form a union, which is tentatively named the Games Workers Alliance, basically citing all the typical things that we hear criticized for these large blockbuster studios, excessive overtime, low pay crunch, uh, expectations to relocate. Obviously, of course, within Activision, the toxic corporate culture and all of that. Um, So they basically are asking for recognition of this union. Unfortunately, when asked about it, I think Spencer, Microsoft itself declined to comment so far on the union, but Spencer did say, uh, CEO Phil Spencer, that he has like very limited experience working with unions, which is kind of a very much like, I don't want to talk about this at the moment. So which is a bit disappointing. Uh, there seems like they're more interested to talk about, uh, well, gee, what what IPs are underneath, like you mentioned Hexen earlier, uh, what, what IPs are underneath Activision Blizzard that we can leverage and not really saying any clear statements about the the employees that are now obviously under their banner as well which is obviously more important uh so and then this is obviously the there there's been a a continuing work stoppage at the company that began in december after some uh of the raven software contractors were laid off uh underneath the assurances of like will increase wages or things like that but when the when they were laid off, the remaining parts of the team basically began to, you know, conduct the work stoppage. And then, as a part of that, out of that, they've decided to form this union, which they're hoping to get recognized. So that's obviously just another wrinkle in this whole acquisition product uh, process, where the allegations against Activision Blizzard, the the current ongoing strike underneath one of Activision Studios, uh, all these things that Microsoft will have to address at some point or the other and currently as of right now as far as i can tell obviously a lot of this news is still 
very hot and coming in quickly. As far as I can tell, I'm looking at reports from Bloomberg and the Washington Post. Uh, they haven't really addressed the uh, the union very clearly, other than like recognizing that they that the union is has made the request to be voluntarily recognized. Other than that, they have nothing concrete has come out of this yet so far. So, yeah, it's just. There's just a lot, a lot of things to that are just it's very, very up in the air. Um, as far as like you know whether it'll uh, trigger like a monopoly warning uh, in terms of like can this business deal deal go through? I imagine it can. I I don't think I think it's very, very, very difficult to uh, like pin this as a threat of a monopoly to Microsoft because Microsoft could easily just go. Like pull up Steve. It's like here are all the games on Steve that are not on uh, under our platform, so therefore it's not a monopoly. Oh, one you know? one one thing that I also want to clear that uh, I just read this in one of the Washington Post reports that I think is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. They specifically chose the name Game Workers Alliance because it's not specific to their studio or department, under the idea that other parts of the company or other game workers across the country could identify with this union over time. So I thought that was an interesting consideration there of uh, what they're unionizing under. And then uh, Spencer, his his quote is, I'm going to be honest, I don't have a lot of personal experience working with unions. I've been at Microsoft for 33 years, so I'm not going to come across as an expert on this, but we'll be having conversations about what empowers them to do their best work. So kind of like the very safe sort of answer to, yeah. uh, to that, to the formation of the Game Workers Alliance Union. So I mean that that's one of those things. Like at, at least we know he'll be having conversations. He'll be very willing to hear them out. I'm not going to say it's gonna, it's like going to be a pro or con for them. But uh, you know, knowing Phil, like you know the way he's presented himself, at least he's willing. Because at least he was willing to at least be honest. And say like he doesn't really, he doesn't know what he's really doing. But like in terms of, like <laughs> unions, you know, like he doesn't have much experience. But he's willing to at least you know hear them out. Hopefully it, it leads to something good for the workers' side. And that's all we can really hope for. And I imagine he'll be more willing to take them more seriously than like what the leadership would be at Activision Blizzard King. You know. Mm. Um, but at the moment, you know, it's a, it's going to be an ongoing development till you know the middle of next year, and uh, hopefully conditions will improve for the workers at Activision Blizzard King. And, uh, and we're we're kind of in a position right now for our site where the only game we've really been covering for Activision Blizzard was Diablo 4. And even that has like they were having quarterly updates throughout like 2019, 2020, 2021. And I uh, some of our news writers have just kind of uh, we, we haven't created a site wide stance on coverage of Activision Blizzard, but we might have to address that in the in the future, uh, depending on the outcome of this. And so the like. Upon when once Diablo 4 starts approaching its release cadence and marketing, whenever that is, one year, two years, three years, uh, at that point we'll have to reevaluate where things stand upon the recognition of this union, the allegations at Activision, the presence of the management, um, things like that. So uh not our decision to make. We'll have to, to be talking to our superiors, but we'll ha- we'll have to reconvene then. So we're kind of luckily at a point where we can just kind of like wait and see how this whole uh how this all plays out. Yes, uh, so it's just it's just one of those things that like it's we 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 only cover games that we feel like it feels right to cover them like 
it, like the, there's a reason why we didn't really talk about Diablo 2 resurrected that much that last right time. yep it's just if, if you've noticed that we didn't cover it that much uh there were reasons behind that i guess yeah yeah they're, 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 I, you know there are definitely reasons behind it and it's also like we're not we're not deaf to like on the and blind to like the ongoing developments of like the industry like there we covered games that like yes on a professional stance but also on a morally on, on a morally like on a moral stance as well like we're not gonna we're not gonna respond to like oh there's really bad shit happening at Activision Blizzard game like well okay that that sucks for them we're gonna keep on continuing to cover you know Diablo you know <laughs> like and it's like that's not that's not really fair to like you know our readers our listeners and obviously to our peers in the industry like we all we will always stand with the people who are working with in these companies um, because. It sucks, you know. We should we shouldn't have to bend to like uh, the the the, the wheels of upper management, mm-hmm. and we get that, you know. And I, I, we're very we're very fortunate that we have a very like um just knowing and understanding, uh, empathetic like you know boss Alex, you know, who understands that, and we're we're very blessed and fortunate uh, on our end for that, and we always thank him for that. So that was obviously the big major news of the week. Uh, obviously, outside of that, we have some bits of smaller news. January has been a little bit slow in terms of the announcement front, as expected. But there were a couple things here that we will go into. Um, there were We spent a lot of time last week covering some upcoming indie games that we were most interested in and kind of deciding which ones we thought were the, the most exciting and the most, look, most worth looking into in the future. There were a couple more this week uh, that we wanted to talk about. Uh, the one that I wanted to cover, and Adam is always really good. He's the one that puts together most of these news announcements, uh, finding these little uh, smaller projects on Steam and making sure to kind of like uh, use our our platform here to kind of give them uh, a megaphone of sorts to at least uh, give them a bit of visibility outside of a small Steam page or whatever Kickstarter they were birthed from. And the one that I decided to put at the top here of the podcast is a upcoming RPG that takes place at a witch academy called Songs of Glimmerwick. And there was a feature on IGN talking about this. This is from being developed from East Shade Studios. And this is a non-combat RPG that takes place at a school very reminiscent of something like Hogwarts uh, that involved that. F- focuses more on like dialogue choicing, dialogue choices, crafting, enchantments, things like that, and and less on combat or, you know, that conflict or things like that. So I thought this was an interesting uh, little project. We got a about a two minute trailer up on the site showing it. It's got it's got a very kind of cutesy art style. Felt like I felt like I would give it its due here at the top of the podcast announcements. It does not have a release date. It has an official website uh that we've linked on our news post it's got a feature on ign where the developers talked about their their aspirations for the game and it's currently listed as a release for next year for 2023 so again this is um songs of glimmerwick yeah this looks really really cool i i'm always down for like rpgs that like have the have the boldness like you know what there's no combat in this rpg because a lot of people associate rpgs with like hey there's these have some sort of battle system but then there'll be some games like you know what 
just chill out and live in this world and have fun. And its art style reminds me most, I think, of like the Banner Saga games. Mm. So that, that's what I think of when I see this. So very kind of very colorful, very, very like late 90s Western animation, maybe. It's, yeah. I don't know, I think it looks really cute. You can try out for the moth racing team in this game. <laughs> what the hell is moth racing? Moth racing, exactly what it says. It talks a bit about the the world itself, as the crafting system, character progression, dialogue choices. So obviously, it'll it's a bit for far out if if we don't see it until next year. But figured I'd give it its uh give it a call out here. Uh, we got a couple of new trailers for games that we we're already talking about. Uh, we got another trailer for Horizon for Forbidden West. So this game is obviously in the very center of its marketing cycle. It had a had a big presence. Uh, Late last year, as we talked about the, the Game Awards, it had a new trailer there. Um, we've got trailers specifically on combat, specifically on world building. And we got another trailer specifically on story this week. And this game is releasing in less than a month in mid-February. This is kind of at the point of the marketing cycle where I feel like people have already decided whether they're interested in playing Horizon Forbidden West or not. But we got a new story trailer. And I thought the story of uh, Zero Dawn was pretty interesting, but at the same time, I don't. I'm not the sort of person that usually watches story trailers because I'd rather just let the game itself convey the story to me and figure out how it's how it's doled out and how it's you know how you experience it as a player going through the game. But pretty pretty extensive story trailer that we've got up on the site. We got something uh, for we got a small update for Yeast Nine Monstrum Knox on Steam. So similar to Yeast Eight Lacrimosa of Donna, the Steam port of Yeast 9 now has an experimental co-op mode. I know that this was also similar to what was announced for Lacrimosa of Donna alongside a lot of its PC-specific releases like high-resolution textures and things like that. Uh, did anyone ever play these games uh, in co-op? I did. Um, no. Right before um, Corona really hit, a buddy of mine... Uh, played through about like the first three hours of the game using the co-op. Like on oh, these eight, yeah, it, it was fun. It was fun. It was definitely janky in some ways because if you got far enough away, like you for some of the level geometry, but like it, it wasn't like broken. It was just funny. Okay, nice. So how does it work? Like, does each character, each each player, gets just assigned a character in the party? Yeah. And is it is it just two player or is it three player? Just two players. Oh, okay, I was wondering if it was a third person, third third person party, uh, if it'd be three player or not. But apparently, it must have worked change. well enough and been successful enough for Yeast Eight that they decided to because uh, they could have easily just said, "Okay, that experiment didn't work," and then decide not to implement it for Yeast Nine. But uh, it appears that it did. So yeah, this is what's, uh, this one seems more robust. Like they even mentioned, like unlike Yeast Eight, where co op was mostly limited to combat. Like the second player now is like it's pretty much uh, par for par in terms of capabilities for player one. So like they can actually like uh, explore the map and like with East Nine you have a lot of new like movement mechanics with the monstrum gifts. So they can use that. They can uh, discover and trigger landmarks, enemies and events, uh, open chests, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like uh, it seems like East Eight was limited to just combat while for the second player, but now. They can just like do as much as stuff as the player one side, so they've been not only just reiterating it but expanding it uh, as well. And that, it's like I watched a trailer for this, and like this seems that seems really really funny. <laughs> like uh, like it's like one of those games like you didn't think it could happen, but then here they come. 
just crazy. It almost feels like an officially supported mod. And this uh, this update that added uh, co-op to East 9 on PC does also basically tweak up just the PC port in general. They've added some more arbitrary rendering resolutions. I think specifically, uh, Josh, you had mentioned that this was in idea of supporting like the vertical resolution of the Steam Deck. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then they... they, they... Go ahead. Go for it. I was just uh, going to say they've also updated like a lot of the post processing. They've at, they've uh, so this is obviously of course by PH three underneath uh, Durante. So I'm very not surprised that he's continuing to tweak and uh, update what the PC port is capable of for this game. So uh, adding new ambient occlusion techniques, uh, adding more processing effects, um, high resolution, sorry, high frame rate vertical sync, uh, new new filters for like motion blur and things like that. So basically a nice full update for the PC version of this game, which is cool to see. Uh, um, yeah, they showed, they showed it off uh, on the screenshot on the, on the post uh, on Steam. They showed it running on the Steam Deck. Yeah. This new 16 by 10 aspect ratio, so... That's ready to go. Um, but you know what's you not ready to go for the Steam Deck? Persona 4 Golden. <laughs> oh, why is that? It's, uh, they, they put out like a preliminary list of like uh, what's uh, fully supported, what's playable, and what's not supported right now because of the way Proton is developing. And Persona 4 Golden was under... The, uh, as of the moment, Steam Deck cannot run Persona yeah. 4 Golden. So the reason for that is that the... Uh video files that Persona 4 Golden uses are encoded with codecs that are Microsoft proprietary. So um, Valve cannot um, get them working under Proton themselves, but there are like workarounds already to basically wine tricks the codecs into the wine installation for Proton. So users will be able to play it if they're, if they tinker around with it, it's just technically breaking the law just uh Microsoft won't go after anyone like doing it just to play a game, but Valve, they might be like, okay, that's a stink. Uh, I heard I heard Phil will, will personally knock on your door if you try to run Persona 4 Golden on Steam Deck. Yeah, well, one of the things that Valve has already stated that they're trying to do is that they know that this is a problem for a number of games, and one thing that they're trying to do is that they will detect movie files and they will re-encode them on their server end for like delivery if you're playing the game through Proton for uh, so that they're running under a codec that's supported by Proton. That way they don't have to try and deal with the issues with the codecs like in the first place. On they're trying to kind of do converting on the fly when they reach the trigger for the movie file? Well, no, not on the fly. What they will do is like when it gets uploaded they will search for the, um, for the oh, okay. those codecs because you can. It's not that hard, mm-hmm. and they'll just uh, convert the movie files on their end specifically for if people are going to download the game on Steam Deck or Steam OS or Linux. That way, uh, when so they that, deliver, okay. Good. That way, whenever you enable Proton for a game, the server will know to swap out the movie files with the re-encoded ones. Interesting, huh? Huh. Technology. Now, whether or not that'll work out, who knows? But it seems like a novel solution. So, do you guys know when your Steam decks like are going to be delivered? Because weren't they uh, pushed back their delivery of those? You too, for me. Let me go check. I don't know. Unless uh, people canceled, in which case maybe it's Q1 Steam now. Steam deck. What do we got? Q2 for me as well. 
Yeah, so probably April, early May. Soon. Uh, we have a sales update for Monster Hunter Rise. Uh, upon the release of the PC version of the game, it has now sold 8 million units. And it sold 7 million back in May before the PC release. So uh, obviously the PC release is the key driver for reaching the 8 million milestone. Is, it, so, is this, is this uh, counting the PC version as well? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. It is yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, it's it's hard to judge in a vacuum is eight million good or not because because it's like comparing against world and the breakout success that that was might just seem a little bit unfair. But yeah, uh, it'll be I, it'll be interesting to see like how how much this is driven compl- further upon the release of the Sunbreak expansion. Obviously, how much just is still. World? Do you remember total sales? Yeah, just like their final number that they gave. Let me see what our most recent uh monster hunter world sales update was i want to say like 20 million 17 uh i have i have a report from last summer 17.1 oh no it was 20 million i was right last october monster hunter world 20 million so it's kind of weird it's like oh 8 million versus 20 million it's not it's not where world was but obviously it doesn't also have the console release on um sony or microsoft and doesn't have its expansion yet, uh, which if it ha- if it ends up having like a collection that bundles the base game and the expansion like World did, that would also improve those numbers. But at that point, it just seems like Monster Hunter is World has been an inflection point for Monster Hunter in the West in terms of how well how well it's doing on PC, how well it's doing in the Western market to hit eight million so soon after the PC release of Rise is pretty incredible. And give it a month, I bet it will be up to ten million. I can believe it. I can believe it. I really wonder how how well uh, Sunbreak is going to hit. Uh, come on, Capcom, bring the heat with Sunbreak. I think um, being a day and date will help immensely. I feel like because this is the first time they'll have been able to do that for PC in the console release. Yeah, I, you got to imagine there's a contingent of players that are just waiting for Sunbreak before picking up Rise. Yeah, that's PC. true. And it's like one thing that I keep saying and I don't feel like people really understand is that like Rise is so much easier to run that like hell, like a Steam Deck will be able to run it at max settings, 720p, 60 FPS, no problem. Probably even 1080p if you just like like output it to an external like display or something. And like World was a very like taxing game on both like the GPU and the CPU. So the fact that it sold as well as it did and was such a big success considering how like demanding it was, I feel like the the potential ceiling for Rise might be higher just because of how much easier it should be to run for most players. I you think I talked about that briefly. Uh... You know, it's not a taxing game. Mantra Dirt Generations Ultimate. <laughs> well, I was saying last week when we were talking about Rise, how it doesn't have quite as many bells and whistles as World, but it just runs really nice. No, it didn't requ- require any tinkering on my end. Just really smooth, really nice, no issues, easy, easy to play, and I think it'll be a really good fit for Steam Deck. Uh, a couple launch dates to talk about here. Most of these for uh, various Switch ports. Um, Eglia Rebirth, which is the uh, enhanced port of Eglia: Legend of the Red Cap is releasing on Nintendo Switch on February 10th. I don't know if anyone here has played this. I have not. I know nothing about it. It was like uh, a mobile first game, right? It, it came out on like phones like how many years ago? I think it came out. Like 2017. Yeah. 
I don't know too much about it though. I, I remember booting it up, but I don't remember much about it. It looks nice. Yeah. It's uh, got the Secret of Mana or Legend of Mana aesthetic because it's the same. Is it the same studio, same creators, or something? I don't remember if they share the staff DNA. Uh, I guess like, it has it has a, the same character designer, um, Shinichi Kamekoa, uh, okay. has worked on both Eglia and the, several of the Mana games. Okay. Uh, here's a, so that was on Switch on February 10th. You know what also was releasing on Switch on February 10th? The Kingdom mm. Hearts Saga. In cloud oh. version only. Oh boy. People are memeing that game already. How do you get disconnected in the redive final boss fight or something? Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, that's too bad. So yeah, this was but... uh the Switch versions of Kingdom Hearts were announced alongside uh what the Sora addition to Smash Brothers. They're like, by the way, these these Kingdom Hearts games are coming to Switch in, in uh in cloud version. Um, but they're all they're all already on the uh, eShop, and I think they're like they're currently discounted or they're on sale. But it's still like if you want to get the one and a half, two and a half remix, the chapter final chapter prologue and Kingdom Hearts three cloud versions to get all of them is like a hundred bucks. So it's very yeah. similar to if you wanted to get everything that was on a uh, Epic Game Store when it released on that last year. Everything about this release is a shit show, man. Like like. Uh... Uh, Alex wrote a really nice article summing it up at VG twenty four seven of like just it's ridiculous how like they have to get cloud version. I mean, we mentioned this when it was announced on the Switch as well back then, but like just having the Kingdom Hearts one and two uh, having be cloud versions on the Switch, it's like just the Think- there's a no really no work putting put, being put into these games aside from just like making sure it runs on the cloud for the Switch, like uh, and. It it is a fair point that the Osaka Studio is probably working on the next Kingdom Hearts and they have their hands full, but man, like they should just like outsource these to somewhere else and have them run natively, like run some of these games natively, like like obviously like the older ones. I can understand why how Kingdom Hearts like two point eight and three couldn't run natively on Switch because obviously they're very demanding games on the Unreal Engine, um, and they were designed up for the uh, other consoles. Like, I get that, and having cloud versions of them would make sense, but all the other Kingdom Hearts games would be cloud versions as well, and having the absurd price point to run these on the cloud with... I mean, they do have de- demos available on the eShop to make sure that your connection is okay, but it still doesn't feel good to play them. It feels like you're playing a YouTube video at the end of the day. Well, and then, Wasn't the demo time-limited, so if you're stuck yes. watching cutscenes like, while you get kicked out? Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, some of these games, like if you're trying to watch the cutscenes of them, you'll you'll just like immediately end the demo without having to play it because they're time li- they're time gated. So you only get a certain amount of time with them. I so it's just like, ugh, man. I feel like a lot of devs will, are probably really, really angry that the Witcher Three Switch port happened because, like, if if the Witcher Three, which was a game that ran at like nine hundred p thirty fps on Xbox One, can run in a decent like package on switch as an open world rpg i don't think there's any real reason to say that you couldn't with enough work get kingdom hearts 3 working it wouldn't look nearly as good as the other versions but it's at least got to be theoretically possible yeah i imagine it's theoretically possible it's just like you know in the circumstances of it having be bundled with everything else if that was like a deal it's just like okay i get that this is like but having the older ones be still cloud versions is like just a fucking (laughs) what a joke and then there's there's demos available for these cloud versions 
which people have already shared onto social media about stuttering and lag and you know all the sorts of things where like cloud technology has come really far but when that's your only option here and that's your first impression from these demos not a good look absurd what an absurd release Ugh. i feel i like look i enjoy the kingdom hearts games i wouldn't consider some of my kingdom hearts fans i feel for kingdom hearts fans just this once i wanted to play these on the go they're just paying the switch tax okay the, 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 like, i mean i would be okay I, I would feel more okay with that if these weren't cloud versions but no like you can't even play these on the go because like they're cloud versions they, they rely on a uh, internet connection so they'd have to like rig up their phones to emit uh, like a wi-fi signal to hook up their switch to you That's can always steal the mcdonald's wi-fi just tell That's me how that goes <laughs> yeah go to your local starbucks mcdonald's and be like hey can i play the parts on here for like three hours please one other switch release that's coming in the very end of quarter one is uh koromon which is one of those pokemon likes that was announced last year it is releasing for nintendo switch and pc on march 31st so we actually uh, have a hands-on preview from late last year that Paige chamberlain did on koromon and it's finally got its final release date this year in march on the 31st so i feel like this would have landed better maybe shortly after sword and shield but now we've got rcs coming up and the and the remasters of brilliant diamond shining pearl i don't know how much excitement there is for a for a pokemon like but i don't know maybe i'll be surprised because this is not a new territory like what was that tenzen what was the other pokemon like that was popular last year and then like uh pokemon uranium was like a fan mod or like a rom hack from from a few years ago so this is obviously official release from developer uh trag soft published by freedom games releasing both switch and pc Paige was pretty positive on it she said it was very familiar when she played it last year but had potential it has a vibe like a kingdom not kingdom a game boy advanced title like a, like a Ruby and Sapphire era of Pokemon, which I think is pretty cool because I feel like a lot of these Pokemon fan projects go for like the original, like GB, uh, GB yes. color. That's around the subject aesthetic. too. They, they also released a new trailer for that uh, Pal World game, the Craftopia studio. Uh, that, that was the one with po- Pokemon, but with the guns and you're forcing the Pokemon into like enslavement camps to do your bidding factories. <laughs> what is that, this? That game. Yeah, like it, it was a very viral trailer, the, the first trailer for Pal World, uh, because it was very shocking. Like, uh, there was like a clip in the first trailer where like you're using the Pokemon as like shields for gunfire. It was like really, it was really something. So they really wow, what that. is this? Uh huh. Oh, it yeah. was. Sorry, I had to correct myself. It was Temtem. That was the Pokemon like that I couldn't recall. That was really popular last year. Ten Temtem. I wonder if people are still playing that. If you're yeah. if you're still playing Temtem, let me know in the comments <laughs> if we get one hey man you never know maybe they're, maybe they're too busy to comment because they're too hooked on to tempt them they're like i As can't be right bothered. now there are 1750 players on uh steam for tempt them there you go yeah, that's not, not nothing oh, but yeah coromon releasing in march maybe we'll see if Paige is interested in checking out the full release and then the final news bit that I have here is kind of RPG adjacent is that we learned uh, last year about the creation of a Shenmue anime series and Shenmue, the animation 
begins airing in February on the 5th, and it's going to be uh, on Crunchyroll Weekly as well as on Adult Swim's TV channel. So kind of an interesting combination of vectors there for this release. There was two trailers for it, one in English, one in Japanese, and they're two different trailers. It's not the same trailer with different voiceover. It's two different trailers for the two different markets. I don't know Are if you anyone watching this. I don't know anything about Shenmue. Oh, it seems like, like you're the target. Seems months. like you're the target audience then, because oh, this, really? this, is, uh, this is based on the first Shenmue game, so you don't need to have to know Shenmue. So. And it's going to end up like a manga where you have no closure to your storyline. I mean, I'll, I'll watch it. Sure, why not? I I enjoyed Shenmue the game, and it came out way back when. I was like, ah, sure, this is this is cra- this is crazy. Um, I I it's one of those things that's it's really funny because the, the there's two takes to this. One is like. Cool, like there's a Shenmue uh, anime, but I don't know if like it, it kind of gets rid of like what I like about Shenmue, like the game part for some from that audience, and then the other audience is like, oh, cool, they're taking out all the boring parts of Shenmue, and maybe it'll be an enjoyable experience now. <laughs> you know I what forget. I want from this anime? I just want this one cutscene from the video game. It's where forklift. No, I want okay. that one guy where he says, "I used to be Chinese." Oh God! <laughs> yeah, th- this is every uh, very. The dialogue was uh, was a, uh, of its time of its era, so there there's a lot of stilted dialogue of like of like Rio looking. I'm looking for a Chinese person. Like there's random people on the street. Like, I'm, are you Chinese? I'm looking for a Chinese person. It's like. <laughs> I do I do like how I forget if it's in the uh English trailer, but in the Japanese trailer, there's like one one second shock a uh, shot of like the of a forklift moving. Like they know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want. So oh, yes. I, there better be like a, at least at least half an episode's worth of like forklift driving, a segment co- uh dedicated to forklift racing. But I, I think the series lost a lot of its charm because the Yakuza basically are like their spiritual sequels in a way. It's like everything that the Yakuza did is like just better than what Shamu was providing now. I mean, I, I there is certain aspects that Yakuza like definitely did better, but the, there is something to be said about like the Shenmue was definitely more relaxed pace and not so over the top as Yak- Yakuza is. You know, there's. There's a certain amount of groundedness to, to Shenmue that Yakuza just like just went super over the top from the get go. <laughs> um, but like it's it, interesting though. Uh, yeah. I'll see how this goes. I mean, yeah. you don't get much video game uh, anime adaptations these days, and usually they don't really cover much of it. So yeah, like, well, last year we had like the World Ends with You. Hey, hey uh, Scarlet Nexus. Scarlet Nexus did yeah. Blue Reflection, not based on the game. It's a side story. <laughs> Rip. Yeah, dude. So, sure, why not? I, I, I don't know. Does Shenmue have a fu- future after three? <laughs> after how three went? Wow, maybe they could start their Kickstarter. I don't know. Oh well, God, who, who knows? Maybe the anime is really successful, and then they'll make, and then they'll make an adaptation of two, and then maybe an OVA of three, and then Shenmue Four is an anime now instead of a game. But fulfilling Suzuki's vision, all right. How many games? How many games did he want Shenmue again? Like six? I forgot or nine. Well, it'll live on in anime form if this is successful. Maybe I, I, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. The, 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 the concept of a Shenmue anime in the first place is so weird and really funny to me. <laughs> and I know that's kind of tangentially related, but because uh, Shenmue itself isn't really an RPG, but hey, we we'll figure it. We'll cover it here. Why not? 
And that kind of covers it for this week. So like we said, very top heavy, a lot of discussion about the Microsoft acquisition and then just a few other announcements just to kind of round out the cast. Uh, obviously, I'm glad we got a, a chance to talk about the the January releases of Expeditions Rome and Monster Hunter Rise on PC. We will reconvene next week to maybe talk about Pokemon Arceus, at least uh, or Arceus, at least maybe first impressions. Uh, who's writing the review for that, by the way? Do we know yet? For which game? Pokemon for uh, Arceus. I think was it, was it Jess? Yeah, I want to say she was the one that was put down, but I think we aren't getting a code until launch. So, so, so we, yeah, it might, it might, it might not be on the release of the game. So. Yeah. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what her thoughts are once those are written up, and other people that decide to play it uh, once they, uh, if they can show up on the podcast and discuss what we think. Yes, uh, signed by editor Jess. Okay, so we'll we'll definitely uh, see if we maybe get her on the podcast, or if not that, uh, go well, over what she ends up writing up for the site for the, her review on that and what she ends up thinking. Well, even if she we can't get her on the podcast next week, I'll be playing the game, so I'll definitely have some impressions. Yeah, and, and I'm planning on playing it as well, but I'll be playing it with the uh, normal launch, and uh, so it might not be until the week after until we can talk about it more. Uh, all the news and the headlines that we talked about this week are up on the site, including the feature uh, Alex's take on the Game Boy Advance versions of the Final Fantasy games, which are, those are some interesting takes uh, on the social media. Uh, they don't do not seem to agree with him, but uh, obviously it's up there for you to form your own opinion. And then obviously Josh's uh, feature on the potential future of Armored Core after from people software. do agree with me, yes, largely. Two thumbs up. And, and of course, when people agree with you, that's when you're correct. Nothing else matters. Yes. Uh. <laughs> uh, obviously, we have all the other news that we talked about, all the release dates up on the site as well. Thank you, Adam, who's not here, for always staying on top of all that stuff. Uh, we've got the Discord channel that we've mentioned in passing earlier on the podcast, just discord.com slash RPG site. Uh, we have the social channels on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, RPG site. You'll be able to find us there if you just search for that. And we're here every week on the podcast, on the Tetracast. So we look forward to talking to you then. Until then, though, do stay safe. Take care. See you next time. What's Microsoft buying us?